I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Amy Gaeta, a PhD candidate in English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She takes a transdisciplinary approach by bringing together critical disability studies, feminist science and technology, and visual cultural studies to understand the present and prospective roles of AI, automation, and robots. Her dissertation, Drone Life, a feminist crip analysis of the human, examines positive effects toward drones to theorize how drones are changing what it means to be human. Her next project examines AI's role in the treatment of mental illness and cognitive disabilities within the global mental health crisis. Amy Gaeta is also a poet. Follow her on social media at Twitter at Gaeta Amy. That's at G-A-E-T-A-A-M-Y. And visit her website, aegata.wixsite.com. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. If you're listening to this on the Rendering Unconscious podcast stream, please know there is a video of this conversation at YouTube. Just look for Rendering Unconscious podcast at Trapart Films YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T film at YouTube. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. it we're doing it live um <laughs> bill o'reilly it's bill o'reilly <laughs> that's the only time i'll quote bill o'reilly in my life <laughs> i love it yeah so is there any particular place that you would like to begin let me think um first i think it's probably good to just give an overview of the um multiple things that I'm regularly doing, um, which would, I guess, constitute my work. Um, Because I have kind of like an expansive array of things that I'm always doing. 
Um, so, and they're all interconnected. It's just, it seems very abstract, but I think the, the kind of psychological elements that I see threading through each um, is really where I would come through. Um, my cohesive body of work would come through. Um, so first I would say um, I am a poet. I'm really committed to doing methods such as auto theory, which I'll talk about more because that's really central, um, especially thinking about questions of desire and mental illness um, and ambiguity. I was talking to someone recently um, and I don't mean this in an insulting way, but I think there's kind of two types of poets. There's poets that aim to communicate to others and say, this is my experience um, and hoping to reach them that way. And I'm understanding communication here in a kind of classic sense of here's point A, and I just want to get to point B. And I'm not interested in communicating. Uh, <laughs> I am interested in kind of using writing as a way to understand myself, but understand myself in a kind of plural sense. So when I'm writing, whether it be poetry or theory or a personal essay, I'm more just trying to first understand myself. I'm not really interested in communicating. I'm more interested in kind of opening a field. Um, we could even use the language of portal here. Um, and that is why I, I kind of write in this automatic way where I don't really edit pretty much anything. Um, I just kind of start at a random line. I don't write with intention either. I don't, I never say, I'm gonna write a poem about disability justice today. Never done that in my life. Um, I usually start with like two to three phrases, like something very kind of random. Um, for example, like, you know, three weeks ago, my niece is, is you know, she's young and she says outer space, like outer spaces. And I was like, outer spaces. I was like, I love that. I'm going to take that. And I just put it in my notes in my phone. And so I have all these notes in my phone of just random phrases that I'll just pick one one day and I'll just kind of start playing off it. And then by the end of it, I will look at it for a few minutes and then I'll realize, oh, that's a poem about that part of my life. Oh, that's what I was saying there. And it's interesting that the more that I do that practice when I write poems to kind of open things up, the more that people connect with them. Mm -hmm. People tend to get kind of, I think, bored by poems that just try to communicate. If I said, hey, I'm, you know, mentally ill, and here's my experience about it. Um, I think there can be power in that, but it's just not my interest, for example. Um, yeah, I found so I that a lot of my favorite art is this kind of art, like you said, where the the artist does the work and then kind of realizes what they were doing in the work kind of after the fact, not necessarily consciously like before or during the act. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's definitely more kind of process oriented, for sure. Um, it reminds me of, um, um, I actually have a book of her writing right here, um, Eva Hesse. Um, the famous, the famous kind of minimalist post um, World War II artist, and all of her. We should put in find a photo of her work somewhere on the podcast. But um, you know, all of her work is just like you go into the gallery and you'll see like three strings hanging on the wall, connected to like a ball, and then there's like you know some um, some like spikes, and everyone's like, "How is that art?" 
right? They, people have that reaction and I walk in, I'll just start crying. <laughs> like I always say, I'm that person that will cry in a white square in a gallery and not understand why. Um, and I think that is kind of very much the art that I have gotten really interested in and, and connected to, even though I can appreciate other art. Um, and the same with theory. I'm just not interested in being told what to think <laughs> very much. Um, yeah, so that's the poetry side. That's what I do there. Um, and then next is my like dissertation PhD research. Um, I'm a PhD candidate, almost done, in literary studies and visual cultures at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, my dissertation, and this is when things get weird, is just a complete, um, a complete work on drone technology and understanding its role in domestic life in the US and the UK mainly, um, and looking at the psychological attachments between humans, the general public, um, and drones on a somewhat romantic, pleasurable, um, and like desirable level um, and understanding how drone technology has been kind of incorporated um, as what I would kind of what I'm theorizing as like virtual prosthetics or emotional prosthetics mm -hmm. um, to help people cope with domestic life and neoliberalism in various ways. So we have that one. So we go into robotics. Um, and then I'd say my third area of work is really focusing on disability justice through various advocacy projects, um, especially neurodivergence and autistic people. And um, also through writing, working with nonprofits. And that I would say is kind of is my more like accessible and straightforward work where I am trying to communicate in that sense. Um, and most of that, I'd say, most of that work does also come from an understanding of the, the what some would call the personal, and I would call kind of the plural or the collective. <laughs> and how did you find your way into each of these kinds of fields? <laughs> um, I've always been, I've always been interested in poetry. Like the only one in my only one in my family, I, mean, I started writing when I was probably seven or eight. Um, always interested in like reading and literature and books, and I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. I was always very awkward, um, which I now just understand was um, because I was autistic and I had no idea. <laughs> and but I became very interested in poetry because it seemed like the one thing in my life that didn't bore me. Um, not to sound kind of full of myself, but like school was always very easy. I didn't have to try. I could read something and understand it like very easily. Um, my family was also pretty poor growing up um, and my dad would clean apartments for money. And he would just bring home random books to teach me how to read and they'd be law books and medical journals. So that's what I learned how to read off of. And so I was just so bored with all that. And I loved poetry because I didn't fully understand it. Um, and I thought that was really powerful to admit, I don't understand something, but I'm still going to write it and I'm still going to put it out there and communicate it, um, try to communicate it. I loved that. Um, and I carried that through pretty much my whole life um, into college. And then when I got into college, I got really interested in it. And I did a bunch of um, workshops and classes and 
now I'm still growing to be kind of established in poetry, but I have a collection that I'm moving around to publishers now. So getting there. Excellent. And, and I don't know if you know, but there's, there's a book called Rendering Unconscious as well. And it's almost sold out and the hardbound is almost sold out. So we're going to do an expanded paperback edition soon. And it's Rendering Unconscious Psychoanalysis, Politics and Poetry. So if you would like to contribute some of your poetry to the Rendering Unconscious book, that would be fantastic. I'd love to. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, that's, I, would, I would love that. That's great. Um, and I have one poem that is just about um, psychoanalysis and um, my attachment to my mother's womb and my sex life. So that sounds great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a, it's always a fun one. It's a crowd favorite. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. And um, I also love that kind of concept of the, of the book too. Um, so often I, Think there's a misunderstanding of um, psychology as firmly in the social sciences and that's nothing to do with art at least that is how I see it happening in higher education um, I don't know if you've kind of experienced those sort of boundary lines there oh yeah absolutely and you know and for the most part in psychology programs I have my my PhDs in psychology they totally discount psychoanalysis so now it's oh, kind yeah. of only alive in the humanities I think um, but what Freud always said was every, everywhere I go, there's always been a poet that was there before me. And I, I always loved that line. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I do love that. And especially when you read, I, I mean, so much of, you know, kind of the foundational psychoanalysis, we're deeply interested in language. And you see that interest going in and understanding how much our, our language kind of structures and also reveals our unconscious. Um, it doesn't really seem like a natural connection now when you when you say it like that. Um, he said something very smart though. Oh yeah, this is this is actually something I was I was thinking with today and um, kind of preparing for this talk with you was the distinction between psychoanalytic practice and psychoanalytic theory mm -hmm. because it's it's rather funny. Um, I'm. Kind of famous for like grilling all of my therapists uh, <laughs> i don't think they like me very much <laughs> but um but i always bring up psychoanalysis and therapy and i'm like this helps me understand myself and my situation and others and they're always kind of giving me a side eye or kind of like yeah you know that doesn't work or uh, no one trusts that and I didn't know if that was something that you you knew about because I've been thinking about how to balance um kind of that distinction or tension in my own work between psychoanalysis and kind of more straightforward therapies or the more yeah I guess popular the, therapies. The, the <laughs> practice of psychoanalysis versus psychoanalytic <laughs> theory which I know some psychologists look at and they're like yeah, no, they really discounted it. And I think it's a real shame. Um, the, the thing that I say first is that I'm so grateful to all the psychoanalytic theorists in the humanities and like in film um, and literature, because everyone I talk to um, that's like, say, under the age of like 35, they've all come to psychoanalysis through the humanities. And um, yeah, so thank you all the professors for getting psychoanalysis alive because in mental health, 
they've like completely tried to discount it and just like kill it basically um yeah so i'm glad that it's still alive in that way but the thing that i've also heard from some people that did learn psychoanalysis like through the theory in university is that a lot of the people teaching the theory say that the practice is something that like is something they wouldn't do or like they wouldn't recommend or nobody really <laughs> practices it it's only good for theory so to that i say please don't tell people that <laughs> right <laughs> because it actually is a really great practice i found and it's completely changed my life so i'm glad that i found it um yeah so i think the practice is really valid i think what's happened is that the psychoanalytic institutes um that train psychoanalysis have made it so kind of you know obscure and mm -hmm. it's like like the institute i went to for example it they only they only trained doctors and most of those people were medical doctors so it was people that didn't have any training in like psychological theory or psychoanalysis at all um, and they wouldn't even train psychologists if they could still do that. But there were a bunch of lawsuits like in the 1970s where psychologists had to like fight for their right to be able to still be psychoanalysts as well, because the medical field was just trying to completely get rid of anyone who wasn't a medical doctor that was a psychoanalyst. Um, so there's been like so much politics within the field that's really like narrowed it down. Um, and I think that's one big one of the biggest problems because I found like, like they've tried to make rules like you're only in psychoanalysis proper if you're seeing someone like four to five times a week for an hour each day. And, you know, it's like that, that would be great if everyone could do that, but like, who can do that, you know? And like, right. who's gonna pay for it? You know, it's just like, it's not, yeah. it's not realistic. And I found that when people are in the process, especially if they are reading the theory and they're engaged in the process, you know, if seeing someone once or twice a week, twice a week is perfect because it keeps you, you know, in the process and, and talking more often. And you can do writing, you can do free associative writing on your own or think about your dreams and write those down and kind of do the work on your own in between sessions. Um, and my goal when I do analysis with people is to try to help them do it as much as possible without me so that way one day they can kind of end their formal analysis and just keep the process going on their own in their own lives you know yeah yeah that's yeah that is so interesting that you kind of brought up those criticism and those points because um i think this is kind of partially where the disability justice work comes in because I will say one sad thing is that psychoanalysis, at least in US universities in the humanities, is dying. I get a lot of criticism for even using it um, or even reverting to it. And more and more, I don't see it being taught. I absolutely love uh, my two mentors, Leslie Bow and Jill Cassid, for fully encouraging me. And always, um, you know, Jill Cassid really, I think, taught me psychoanalysis in a, in a really important way. And I realized it was foundational to my thinking, um, and I can I can share that story because it's really funny. But <laughs> but one thing that I was thinking about is how much psychology is, um, at least mainstream, is really moving towards this privatized, individualized, and medicalized model. And in some ways, I think criticisms of psychoanalysis or the ways to push it away are also some kind of internalized fear of the power of psychoanalysis, mm -hmm. um, especially when, you know, with psychoanalysis, it's like, you're always, you know, it doesn't end. 
right? It's like, it's always the process. You're always working things out and people don't like that. I think that there's a lot of pleasure in the kind of finality of this idea of, oh, I can, you know, do therapy for six months and help my anxiety or get over my childhood trauma. And people, you know, and I think this is kind of um, an internalized ableism where there's a general consensus that's like, that's really scary. You know, it's really scary to also understand yourself that there is parts of yourself you can never access and never know. And one of the other transformations, at least in the US that we've, in, in Western notions of psychoanalysis is that it's been so focused on the ego and it's been so misunderstood as a psychology of just the individual, and which is just, you know, like the biggest mischaracterization, mischaracterization because like psychoanalysis is all about the relational. <laughs> it's never understood the self as a closed unit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's never understood even the self as kind of plural or, or several, but always also outside of the self. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I see this with other trends too, such as individualized medicine, personalized medicine, the dislike, this is really interesting, of group therapy. That's been really interesting to me. Um, I did a lot of research on last summer, how many people are um, how many people actually practice it and want to practice it? And now how it's been kind of demoted to the work of social workers as if social workers are less capable or intelligent, so to speak. Um, and and I, I do kind of wonder if that is also part of this push away from psychoanalysis of saying, you know, one, that's just kind of like too powerful, it's too radical. And also that doesn't fit with our neoliberal individualist agenda where we're using, I would say, mental health um, and privatizing it and making it a personal problem. Um, And also the whole biological chemical imbalance notions there, making it a personal problem rather than understanding, um, you know, mental health and psychology as this um, kind of relational field that we could I, I, I'm very interested in like mad politics and understanding mental illness and neurodivergence as these connecting factors rather than keeping things so private. Um, and anyone that knows me or has seen me on social media knows I'm the first person to just share everything about my medical history. <laughs> I have no boundaries in that because I, I think it's really powerful and I think it's important um, to deprivatize mental health in that sense. Um, and you are helping me now think through how maybe the push away from psychoanalysis is part of that. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely think you're right. And um, I think it is overwhelming for people. And when you do do this, have the psychoanalytic process like going in your own mind, and when you do see like how pervasive all of these relations are and all of these systems have affected you and how much you've internalized um, from society, that can be very overwhelming as well because you start seeing how much it permeates like every aspect of your life Mm -hmm. and people don't want to see that you know (laughs) they want to be like in six to ten sessions I can be fixed and happy you know (laughs) it's like not really but (laughs) it's a total illusion and people shouldn't we need to move away from people wanting that because that is not realistic It, it 
wouldn't be fun it's not like it's just not how people are it's like you have to come to terms with with the way people are and it's not that <laughs> right it's just kind of enforcing that other way of um I was just kind of enforcing that repression and I mean this is also part of the way like mental illness and mental health has been commodified you know you can just do this package you can get this package deal of therapy sessions um especially with the rise of talk therapy um I'm really interested in my I want to do my second book on artificial intelligence in the use of therapy mm-hmm. yeah um, like the chatbots and everything which all use CBT um CB yeah CBT and are just all based on this idea really based on the main criticism of, of psychoanalysis that um that the human mind is just this compartmentalized thing that is universal and we can just have these auto-generated responses for all of people's problems um which is like interesting in in many ways to me because i think one of the other issues with psychoanalysis is people i mean one of the criticisms of it right is that it's um it's universalizing it's generalizing and in some ways i'm like yeah i get that but at the other times it's like maybe a, a bigger fear is that we all actually are somewhat similar <laughs> maybe i love what one of my students said this once and i i love them so much for it it's like my first day teaching and um and they were like i think it's so weird everybody's obsessed with being an individual <laughs> and i love the way they said it and i was like you are so correct um you know the bigger fear is that like maybe we all are connected you know um and yeah, I interdependent I, yeah yeah interdependence right or like would it be so horrible if all of our unconsciouses were structured the same um you know my mentor always says this um asks this question that I love and um whenever you bring up like a difference between whenever I bring up a difference between subjects or topics or whatever she'll always ask me and she'll be like, what differences do these differences make? Which is, I think, just a wonderful question and a wonderful way of thinking about how we place values on certain differences in, in context, right? Like, of course it's important that like I'm white and someone else's is black. Like that difference is, is you know, important, but perhaps there are some contexts where it's irrelevant. Um, and thinking about that, I think it's been really helpful for me to kind of work through the criticisms of psychoanalysis and also just like channel through it. <laughs> yeah, and I think in the States in particular, psychoanalysis kind of took this, this turn towards the individual and like away from it's like trying to help the masses and be more political um, and turn more to this ego psychology where you know people were focused on like having a healthy ego so you can basically like go to work and have your little family and your nuclear right. family and your perfect little life um but that's not really seen in other parts of the world it's really like american psychoanalysis where that kind of happens not yeah. surprisingly yeah. <laughs> you know yes yes yeah as an american we're, we're really good at ruining things and making it about ourselves uh, <laughs> that's kind of our trademark move um yeah but you you raised so I think so many like good points um and I think that this is something I'm trying to combat in my work especially like my theoretical work 
And um, I said this to my, I mean, you know, my dissertation was about like, you know, robotics and um, human robot psychology and like, you know, some aspects of warfare. And then there's a whole chapter about pornography and how drones are used in it. It goes all over the place. How are drones used in pornography? Oh gosh, that's a whole genre. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Oh, the drone porn is great. Um, yeah, first drones, drones are used in porn. Um, for filming, sometimes they're voyeuristic characters, like kind of, you know, watching um, watching the sex act. There's sex toys attached to them, and then the person is, you know, being penetrated by a drone. Um, and I also just discovered that there's like CGI drone porn, which really gets in depth, and it's just completely animated, pretty much, but it's more realistic. Um, there's also a phenomenon where another kind of drone porn where people masturbate to images of drone strike footage. So that's that's been what I've been kind of exploring. But as you can see, like there's so many interesting questions of pleasure there and of vulnerability um, and also the rise of it. Just like I can, under, I can kind of understand like why someone would want to have sex with like a sex robot, right? That looks human, usually presents as female, often Asian as well. And then someone that wants to have sex with a drone, which is this little quadcopter thing <laughs> that represents militarism and warfare. So I got, you know, kind of really interested in that genre. But I, I mentioned this to just mention, like, you know, I have this dissertation that's sprawling out everywhere. And I said to my therapist a couple weeks ago, because he was like, oh, it would be, he's like, it would be inappropriate of me to read your, like, you know, scholarly work. Because um, I always talk about it and how I understand myself through it. And I was like, oh, my dissertation is literally a theory of myself. <laughs> and he was like, how is that even possible? Um, but it was really born from this ambiguity and this problem I couldn't kind of get out of my head where I would, I was trying to understand how I could watch my nephew play with the drone and find it very cute and find it very adorable and have fun playing with it with him. And then at the same time, how I could see kind of uh, military footage of drone strikes and people being killed and civilians being killed and you know, hating that and finding that disgusting. So I was like, how does this technology make me hate it and also love it at the same time? And then trying to understand myself as not just this little individual unit, but um, in this, there's this Deleuzian line um, where he says like, you always have to understand yourself in the kind of the theorist or the researcher needs to understand themselves within the field that they are kind of um, theorizing. So that's what I tried to do for the dissertation is saying, where am I in this? Where's my subject position? And how am I part of this effective, um, kind of effective or emotional infrastructure that stretches across seas that is determining who cares about what, why, how, and in what way? And kind of, I think important to this approach is I'm not interested in finding answers to anything. Um, I don't believe it's possible. I'm not interested in like finitude. I'm more just kind of interested in exploring these relations between humans and drones and, and other technologies, understanding those emotional bonds 
and saying, what are these emotional bonds doing? Like, how are they affecting us? And the results I've found, I, I think are pretty amazing um, in terms of the ways that they are kind of feminizing, the ways that they are changing the bounds of sexuality. The end, especially, I think probably the most interesting is the ways that technologies, um, drones and, and other personal technologies are making us so compliant with passivity and interdependency. And this is where my disability work comes in, really, and thinking about the ways that human ability is becoming devalued as we have these technologies that can do human abilities better and better. And then asking about how humans are kind of accepting that. So I always make this joke. I'm like, oh, look at my dissertation is all about how people are becoming, you know, um, disabled queer woman. Wow, what am I, a disabled queer woman? <laughs> I'm like, isn't that funny? So I can see myself in my work and other people just, um, you know, it's, it's very abstract um, and they can't, but um the more I present it, the more people do kind of find connections with themselves within it, which has been the most rewarding part for me. Mm-hmm. And how did you get interested in drones specifically? Oh, um, I come from a um, military police family. <laughs> um, not a big fan of the military and the police <laughs> at all. But I did kind of grow up in that and my family was all kind of Air Force and Marines or just um, and also local police. So I always kind of grew up around like military technologies and in this kind of consciousness of that um, and deep consciousness of, of warfare. And I, I think really what became really interested for me is that like when I moved out of my house and I was kind of out of my parents' military mentality. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what radicalized me, but one thing that always bothered me growing up is that my family was really, really proud to talk about how we're Italian, but we never talked about how we're actually more from Syrian descent than Italian descent. And we never talked about the Syrian side of my family and it always kind of bothered me especially because my family is not the most um, politically minded towards um, Arab and Islamic people. So <laughs> it's like um, Islamic people, sorry, Muslims can't be an Islamic person, but, <laughs> but, you know, I was like, I was trying to understand this tension it really bothered me. And then when kind of we had the Syrian uprisings and Syrian civil war started getting really prominent, I just kind of started reading about it and learning about it. And through that, I started really seeing the, the hyper-presence of drone technology and the interest in it and the rise of it. And I think it was really through that. And that was part of the tension I was trying to understand. I was like, how can I think that this is cute? And also kind of understand that, you know, this technology is also kind of destroying this part of my heritage that my parents are also hiding. Mm-hmm. So there was this strange um, kind of, situation of like hyper visibility of kind of cute drones in the US. And then there was this increasing, um, you know, invisibility of drones abroad that I also kind of connected to my, um, my family life in many ways, um, of understanding what was being repressed in that really. 
Yeah, and that's, you know, that's really psychoanalytic too. And that's another reason why I think it, it is really repressed in the States because people, we do need to, as Americans, look into our history as, as people, as our personal histories and also the history of the country and global history more. And, you know, America doesn't want to, you know, I mean, it's being forced to, thankfully, but yeah. it's, uh, it's really done a lot to try to keep repressing its history and its people's history. And, and a lot of people in the States are cut off from their family lineages, whether they, you know, came there, their, their families immigrated there because of famines or war, or they were stolen and brought there, or the fam their land was ripped from under them. Um, so there's just been so much, so many tears from, yeah. from ancestry and roots and family histories. And I think they do find, they come up in that way in people's interests and right. what people are searching and researching and uh, we might not even be aware of. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I think that is, um, that's such kind of a, a beautiful way that you put this, right? We get this kind of mass repression, um, right? In the States and we see this in other kind of colonialist empires as well and imperial states. Um, you know, England is also very good at doing this. But what it made me, you know, um, like one, it's kind of this problem of um, kind of also getting back to the distaste for psychoanalysis of like, you know, this basic idea of like to be uncomfortable, um, you know, that's kind of impossible for people. Not impossible, but it, it's not seen as desirable. And I think a lot of ways that being uncomfortable, right, is so kind of pushed away, people don't want it, is that we also don't have the, the medical or supportive infrastructure for people to feel that discomfort. Mm. Um, like, when can I do that? You know, even in my, in my work, I'm extremely grateful that I have an advising team that will let me do this, of saying, I'm gonna produce this theory and it's gonna be ambiguous. And that's the point. Whereas so many instructors are like, no, you need to have an answer um, or you need to have like a thesis. You need to have a solution to a problem. And I'm like, no, it's just the problem. Mm -hmm. Like, the <laughs> so, you know, you see that at so many scales happening um, where there is always this push for finitude. And even if I think the, the states or just kind of like, you know, um, whiteness in general really really confronted its own discomfort and uncomfortable parts of its history. It's like, we never get over that. It's like, it's just something we have to learn how to deal with. And until we have the social infrastructure for it, I can't imagine it really happening on a wide scale. Oh, that's a good point. And yeah, no, I love, I love your uh, not into finitude because I am not either. <laughs> I agree. I, I don't think it's possible. I think it's more about just like, you know asking these questions and you know exploring things in creative ways um and sometimes i'll like run with a theory and idea that i have and just keep kind of pushing it and seeing where it goes and i'm like i don't you know when i've been giving talks about something i'm like i don't know if i believe this like i believe this but this is like where 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 i went with it where i could take it you know yeah it is. And you know, that's so, I think that's so generative and I think it's so kind of vulnerable and important. I love when I go to a talk and I ask a question and someone and the speaker will be like, you know, I don't know that. And I'm like, thank you for being honest. And rather than just making up some crap answer or having this um, kind of 
um, you know, this, this kind of uh, academic ego that you really do know it all. Um, and that's kind of another part where that discomfort comes up, right? Where like people don't actually want to be vulnerable on the page. Um, and maybe, I don't know if you've come up in this, but I've come up in, in academia a lot where whenever I do kind of bring kind of personal anecdotes or I explicitly talk about myself in academic work, um, for a long time, I was told that that was really selfish. And I was told that I was just taking the easy way out. So I just stopped doing it, of course. And I, I was like, oh, okay, that's not professional. I'm just not going to do it. Um, all right, fine. And then one semester was in art history graduate class. And our assignment was just all we had to do throughout the class was, you know, do the readings and show up. And we all had to produce one, one question, just one question that drives us. We didn't have to answer it. Didn't have to answer it. Just one question. Um, anything about art, whatever you want. So. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I brought in this presentation and I, you know, I was giving the presentation. It was a presentation of three different artworks that I had seen in person that really captivated me and I didn't understand why. And one was a depiction, um, this uh, Georges Balisse painting of, um, of a kind of Holocaust survivor. Um, one, what was the other one? Oh yeah, one was a Doris Salido sculpture um, who kind of writes about um, the missing people of torture sites in Argentina. And then the third was this kind of abstract dance artist. I can't remember the name right now, but they did this abstract dance artist um, dance routine where they would go around the museum and they would be still, or they would be kind of um, just laying on the ground. There was a stillness and a passivity to it. And I just was so drawn to all of these in various ways. And I couldn't understand why. So I'm sitting in this seminar and everyone was kind of looking at me because I was just talking about how these, these three works were connected in a way that had nothing to do with me. It was all just like these three works have something in common. I couldn't figure out what it was. So I wanted to understand like the connections and this transhistorical sense of art and art history and like forms and stuff. And the professor who is now my mentor just looked at me and she was like, you you're the connection and I was like what I don't understand <laughs> and it was funny because the whole class was like yelling at me kind of and I was like getting upset because I didn't get it and they were like no like the answer is in you you just can't feel it and then my professor just gave me um the Abraham and Torek book um about crap the uh the shell and the kernel um of kind of Right, like this would be the, the kernel, which would be a kind of a part of the unconscious that, that absolutely drives me and drives my relations, but I can never get to it, I can never access it. And that really is where everything is sprung and I understood how powerful it could be if I really thought from the self and what I didn't know about the self to make these kind of connections that didn't make sense um, on the surface. And I really kind of loved that of just, demystifying these differences. And I discovered so much about myself in the writing of it, where I was like, oh, that's, that's, I think that's related to that trauma, or I think I understand why that speaks to me, um, at least not fully. And that really started driving my method. And it was extremely great to have that community in the seminar where they were supportive of it. They were like, we want you to be personal. 
and understand that your personal is expansive. Your personal speaks to us. Um, and that was, that was so right. And I can't wait to be a professor so I can do that for people. <laughs> no, it's true. And like you said, like locating yourself within the field that you're thinking about or writing about or researching, it's important because yeah, this idea of being objective, this objective reality that you're studying somehow is like not that's not reality yeah <laughs> yeah right right yeah I'm like that's not reality um but there is a of course that once again like there's the comfort of just having this nice little art object that you examine and you you figure out everything about it and you write your paper and you submit it and you're done um and I think the other part of me was like I was just so distraught and I still am at times about like what's the utility of theory or scholarship and you know those those nice little answers that people would make these kind of this finitude of scholarship it's just i never seemed to offer anything to like the ongoing and explicit problems um within and outside academia so i've also been trying to um kind of bridge that gap in some ways between academia and activism which is definitely hard, um, especially when you are someone who kind of works in these um, like abstract critical theories. But I, I think that I see it more on micro scales, especially the way many justice and rights movements um, are often kind of hyper focused on the individual and hyper focused on identity politics, which is definitely a tough one to, to work through because um, so many people live their lives by identity politics, but at the same time as we get trapped in them so often um, that it really doesn't allow the kind of radical change that we that we so desperately need. Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit more about your activism? Um, sure, I'm happy to. Um, I think I, like many other people, fell into activism. Um, most people I don't think go into it because I want to help people, they go into it because they realize they're being marginalized or oppressed in some way. And I really got interested in activism when I first like, you know, got away from my family and I started to kind of realize the effects of growing up in um, this very military driven conservative Blue Lives Matter family. And I started to realize the effects of that on me and my thinking. And, um, and I was, you know, getting really disturbed by that, of course. So that was one way, but it, it really started actually when I was in a disability study seminar and I didn't identify as disabled. I, I didn't think about that at all. Like, hmm. even though I had a history, I had, you know, an eating disorder since I was the age of eight um like PTSD depression anxiety um chronic pain issues I, I had all that stuff and I knew I did but I didn't identify as disabled and when I got into this seminar it was really important because um a few weeks in I started actually getting I saw myself in the scholarship and I could finally have a vocabulary to understand my experience and once I understood my experience and what had been happening to me and what had been happening to people like me, I was like, holy shit, this is why my life sucks. <laughs> and I was like, this is why my life is so miserable. Like, you know, this is why I'm not happy. And I couldn't realize how many 
various oppressive systems, um, especially academia, um, especially the medical system, um, were deeply, deeply impacting my quality of life. Mm -hmm. And once I got interested in that, I saw it everywhere, especially, you know, in other people, um, other people's lives and other kind of modes, not modes, um, other ways that like disability justice is still kind of really fully, fully reaching, you know, I'm just, I'm like, you know, like this mentally ill grad student. Okay, that's fine. But then there's people in institutions. Um, and trying to kind of think about those connections and the different, I don't want to say levels of disability, because that's, that's gross. Um, <laughs> um, but like the different various types of kind of disability justice issues. And that was really important for me to have that framework. And once I got into it, and I realized my, I always think my, my greatest skill is writing. I think that's the best thing I can give to the world. That's where I feel like I have the most power. And I was like, how can I use my writing to connect to people? So I started writing a lot and I had all this, you know, I have an English PhD. Um, like I can, you know, I know all the tools and I know the language, I know how to distribute scholarship. So I became really kind of visible in public with that and vocal about my disability justice interests and works and initiatives and people took notice really fast. And I'm forever grateful for that um, in terms of the nonprofits I've reached out with, um, the expansive community I have made. I, I've really, I think made like my best friends through this work. And the more I got interested in it, the more I learned not only like about myself, but about different forms of justice and the intersectionality of it. And I became really angry. There's um, my, my friend Haley Moss, she makes this joke of like, nobody wants to become the angry disabled person, but we all need to be. And I loved that because I very much came the angry disabled person and became very loud about it. Um, and as of late, I think my biggest commitments have been focusing on academic ableism. And to be completely honest, probably the only reason I'm staying in academia is to improve it at this point um, through teaching and through scholarship um, and trying to transform it in various ways so it can actually be sustainable was probably the it's still the most disabling experience of my life without question <laughs> so I guess that's how I, I got pissed off I guess that's how I got an activist <laughs> like mm. everybody else yeah and like you said and seeing how much it affects your your life because I think it's not framed that way. And a lot of people see, you know, different politics going on as something that's like, you know, like I have some friends back in Florida still that are just like, you know, whoever's president, you know, my life, I still have to pay my taxes. My life is shit either way, you know, it's just like very, you know, having a lot of difficulties either way and not really seeing any avenues for improvement, no matter what they do. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, I think that the more activism can help change situations and, and, and impact people's lives in, in various ways, definitely the better because these, these politics affects us all to the core for our whole lives. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, I think it gets back to that earlier, um, 
the earlier thing we we discussed too of like you have the so many things are classified as just like individual personal problems and that's kind of also how I was treated in graduate school um of people saying you know you're such a bad writer you'll never graduate and I was like oh and I was like well maybe that's just a problem with your standard of writing that's what I would say now um or the ways that I was kind of criticized for having like um I'm not criticized, but like trying, people tried to, a few people tried to kind of push me out of academia when I had various relapses with anorexia. And I was like, why wouldn't you just support me? Why wouldn't you just realize this institution partly drove me to do that, largely drove me to have those relapses. Um, and I think that's what I honestly loved so much about disability studies. And I am grateful I got kind of into um, like, critical theory is because it it really helped me see this wider network that we're all part of and one of the biggest I think issues of the of so many graduate programs in the humanities now is that they love to teach us critical theory and they don't they never encourage us to apply critical theory to our own lives and that's what I started doing and it's honestly it's trippy <laughs> It's trippy when you're in Target and you're like trying to situate yourself in like a Deleuzian framework, it messes with your head. But it's also, I think, one of the most kind of powerful things to really self-apply theory and understand yourself within it. Because then you realize, like, at least I did, then I realized like all of the things I was blaming myself for were largely not my fault. Mm -hmm. They were all external factors. And that was really empowering. Um, and has given me so much motive to like finish grad school. And I mean, so I, like, my first year of grad school, I had like no confidence and I was like, just like crying all the time. And now it's great because people are intimidated about, of me because I'm so confident. And I love that. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I made a good move. <laughs> yeah, but that's definitely part of how this like white cis hetero Christian patriarchal system works too is to always put the focus on you as an individual and your problem whether it's your biology or you know mm -hmm. you're you're not strong enough you need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and all of this and always putting the focus on that and not the systemic issues that have caused these issues in the first place yeah 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 exactly it, it's just like so ironic when you're in academia too and you're like you're teaching me about systemic issues and telling me we're all involved in them but then you're not treating me like we're we're also in an oppressive system <laughs> um and kind of bringing that consciousness aware to people has really been helpful um I love doing that in class with students. It's it's always fun um, when I just start criticizing the university, and um, <laughs> they they all usually really empathize with it and appreciate it. it I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it also just makes learning better because there's so much less pressure on them. Where you know it's like I'm like okay, we have this deadline for a paper, and I was like I didn't make this deadline. It's a university deadline. If you don't have the paper finish, it's fine. Um, <laughs> you know you can't write at a certain arbitrary pace yeah exactly things. who's made all of these rules yeah none of the rules <laughs> make sense um wasn't it i think originally it was like the um academic and like educational calendar year was just built off of farming cycles 
raise. Like I was like, oh, we need labor in the in the summer months in the spring to you know harvest. So kids got to be at school. <laughs> yeah, a little outdated. Yeah, a little. <laughs> <laughs> a little outdated. It's like I like summer, but um, you know, even nine months a year is just unsustainable at the rate that they put it. No. And it also goes back to what you're talking about in the beginning between like the theory and the praxis, you know, the practice of psychoanalysis or practicing putting critical theory into work in your own life, you know, versus just the theory. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's scary and it's intrusive. Um, but I think that's part of like responsibility. If you're going to be any kind of researcher or academic, it was like, you have to be actively understanding that you're you're gonna change yourself through that like if you're if you don't become like a better person through like your research or your academia I'm like what are you doing <laughs> you're not raising your own consciousness I'm like you got some problems there um and you do meet all these like horrible people in academia and you're like how did you get this far yeah that's the problem too is it's become like just a business and people trying to jockey for position and have status and get their tenure get the job and um, put people yeah. below them rather than trying to kind of help everyone learn and, and think and raise everyone up you know in that way yeah 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 right the neoliberalization of the university um it is always funny to me too when um you kind of read the the kind of fake university missions that are all these about like democracy or you know raising public awareness my favorite is the is the UW, uh, my university's kind of slogan or mantra, which is just forward, which just means we're always kind of going towards this progressive stance. And I'm like, then why are you cutting all the humanities and only funding science? <laughs> I'm like, where are we going? Because we're stagnant. But that's, I think, such like a, a long kind of battle. The um, you know, the, the, the slow death of the humanities and, and funding STEM. But now that we have so many more remote technologies, I think we're gonna see it as, at a really increased pace of how much funding is gonna be cut. Yeah. Um, our programs are gonna be closed. It's sad. Yeah, it is. It's, it's very sad. Um, I think that's part of the reason I've been so heavily invested in um, kind of working with STEM not for job security, um, but just making those connections with like other engineers um, and scientists um, has been really has been really amazing. And you'd be surprised how open they are to thinking with humanities. Um, you know, I work with I always talk with one um, nurse who I kind of mentor through her graduate career. And, that has been really generative because she's so open to thinking about disability justice and thinking about systemic issues and integrating them into her work. And it's the same too when I meet with roboticists, like they're not unaware of social issues, they're totally aware, they just don't know how to incorporate those tools and those ideas in their, in their work. And the more that we make those connections, I, I think the more kind of potential we have to maybe subversively integrate the humanities, even if it's, you know, being killed <laughs> into like science and technology fields. Yeah, I like that. That's how I feel about psychoanalysis. I try to slide it in in other yeah. ways. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like don't say the word because people freak out. <laughs> right? Just slide the but, ideas in there, and people are like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." And I'm like, mm-hmm, it "Does doesn't it?" Weird. <laughs> do you see that play in your own life? <laughs> that would be such a great um if like academia doesn't work i want to i want to just become a therapist probably um and like work in prisons but i feel like that would be such a cool model right where you're this like it's not ethical but you're a therapist and you say you do cbt but like really every everyone comes to you for like under the table psychoanalysis <laughs> If you can't, right, it's like so hard to practice it. I tried to find a psychoanalyst who would, um, in the area, and the only one, there was like one, it was so expensive, wasn't covered by insurance. And I was mm-hmm. like, so bummed out. Um, but we'll see. No, that's why I think technology is really going to do well with psychoanalysis, though, because because it isn't covered, you know, I mean, if you see a medical doctor who is also a psychoanalyst, then it could be covered, but generally insurance doesn't cover psychoanalysis. And so because it's like kind of been pushed out of the medical system anyway, I think it's like the perfect kind of treatment to kind of take on the new technology. And, you know, everyone's been doing remote therapy anyway, since the pandemic's been happening. And I think it could totally like kind of corner that market in some ways um, besides the chatbots. But, you know, because it is kind of deregulated and it's not it's not integrated in the system. So it can work more kind of experimentally in that way. Yeah, yeah, it could be so much more fluid. And one thing, too, about the the rise of like online therapy, I mean, um, you know, I'm I'm deeply uninterested in the kind of major. um, What is it like talk space? That's like the big one, right? Mm -hmm. The kind of um, texture therapist stuff you know, deeply knowing how much I know about those models, like deeply uninterested in them. But um, I do think there's a great way that I've seen many therapy programs, you know, pop up now that do work on a subscription model and still have really affordable rates, actually, even with, um, you know, like the same as what you would pay as a copay with insurance. And that would absolutely be the site to, I think, implement those kinds of um, to implement psychoanalysis, I I helped a friend the last year actually start a business, start a completely online um, uh, therapy practice, um, psychology practice. And I will say one thing that was really difficult about it was not only the ridiculous costs of it, um, but also getting the licensing together for like working across states and everything and there's more and more boundaries put up for it um so i i would be i'd I'd be interested in really thinking about where we can do more kind of like deregulated psychoanalysis um you know besides the humanities to integrate that with people yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna think on that now like where i can bring that in (laughs) i love it great is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we close up? Is there anything you wanted to mention we didn't get to? Hmm. Good question. Um, nothing in particular comes to mind. Um, I would say that. I'd say, like, you know, of course, thank you so much. Um, everyone take care of themselves. Um, take care of other people. And... 
I guess let's just do the kind of classic pandemic move of let's just move, <laughs> let's just keep getting through it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I want everyone to follow you on Twitter and Instagram. Um, because Thank I you. Always, yes, I'm very funny on Twitter, everyone. Yeah, and you're <laughs> really thoughtful. Like, I love how you, you respond to different um, issues and current events that are happening. Always so thoughtfully. And everybody that writes to you in your threads, you always, like, talk to everyone. And, like, it, you, it feels like you really read them and, like, think about what everybody's saying. And it's really Oh, I really refreshing. do love it. Yeah. I do. I feel like there'd be another another meeting where we just talk about how much I believe in virtual relations um, versus the physical, but I firmly support like internet friendships just as valid. The virtual is real. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah. then of course, you know, anytime when your book comes out or anything like that, that you want to come back, you just let me know and come back. Talk Thank more. you. Yes, I yes, and I um, I'm gonna follow up with you because um, I'd love to have a piece in the poetry collection too. Yes. Yeah, that sounds so fun. <laughs> I love it. Perfect. Excellent. All right. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Amy Gaeta. For more, follow her on social media at Twitter at Gaeta Amy at G-A-E-T-A-A-M-Y and follow her website aegaeta.wixsite.com Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T. Net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a 2-3-c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated.
nerves set to work at once. Then we will dig you out, said her father, and bade decode my work. Ring for a moment. I don't write that way. Individual and I won't. The one of the ten sentences to translate. Relaxed atmosphere and how he usually should enter it up. Expert on new fluid find out meditation and focus. I was just mantric techniques. This is Austin Osman. Partly I was scared developed that somebody of an I confessed. My fifteen years you know of service small town to the corporation to and by I me justifiably say I have never before he tally so charged residual secretions form the demand and vaginals they desire never of the ideal true for the thoughts of music a highly visually stones were arriving just for the many spheres of an election where the previous and the decadent period it runs out of change and literal coexistence when I die moving faster here than we anticipated maybe someone will try to procedural exception because to another trial was among divisions within attorneys asked for a this variation indicates we think that set long norms that cut off scoringly should be established the anthology I was struck by was accessible their treasures to be stored how direct the people good as about to deal believe poetry that a miracle would save try and succeed hell believe me for Jessica